0: had to leave your home, your work or your family because of conflict, how would you feel? Today we're going to explore the mental health needs of displaced people which is unfortunately very relevant in today's world and we hope to provide you with some insights that will inform your practice. I'm Pat Anderson, editor of MIMS Learning and I'm delighted to introduce the first episode of season three. It's good to be back in the studio with the team. We're getting great feedback on our first two seasons so we want to build on that with some insights from our learning modules, some great guests and key points to take away. If we can tempt you to the MIMS Learning website or one of our live events as well, we're confident that those will provide you with energizing and inspiring learning experiences. A key focus for us this year is going to be health inequalities and reducing those. And some of what we're discussing in this episode is very relevant to that. First in this episode, Dawn Liz Powell and Rhiannon Ashman are going to talk about a MIMS Learning module on the mental health needs of displaced people. Then we'll welcome our guest, Dr. Susaru Sukumaran a GP with a particular role helping members of the LGBTQ plus community. Finally, we'll deliver three key points on what's said to be the most common male sexual disorder, premature ejaculation. Over to
1: you, Dawn and Rhiannon. Before we start, let's go over what we mean by displaced person. Rhiannon, what do you think the term means? I
2: would say that a displaced person is someone who has had to leave their home for whatever reason. Is the term interchangeable with refugee?
1: Yes and no. A displaced person is someone who has had to flee their home because of conflict or persecution. But only those who have been officially recognised as needing protection are refugees, if they've applied for refugee status, but have not yet received it, they are asylum seekers. Displaced persons who are neither a refugee nor an asylum seeker are undocumented migrants. So in terms
2: of access to healthcare in the UK, does it matter whether they're a refugee or asylum seeker or an undocumented migrant?
1: Yes. In England, all displaced persons, including undocumented migrants, can access primary and emergency care. But only refugees can access secondary care services. Asylum seekers would have to pay for them unless they have been detained under the Mental Health Act. But in Wales and Scotland, both refused asylum seekers and undocumented migrants are entitled to free secondary health care. Regardless of which NHS services they can access, a displaced person may well be in need of mental health support. Fleeing conflict or persecution can obviously have a massive toll on a person's mental health. Around a third of displaced persons have PTSD and or depression, a much greater incidence than is seen in the general population.
2: Wow, well, that is a surprising proportion of people with um, with PTSD or depression. You mentioned fleeing conflict, but what other factors could be contributing to that figure?
1: There are lots of things a displaced person could have experienced or witnessed that has caused them trauma. For example, they may have been subjected to human trafficking or modern slavery. They may have had a prolonged and hazardous journey to their safe country. And even if they are technically safe and granted refugee status, They may well be separated from friends or family, may not be able to work, and that all could be negatively affecting their mental health.
2: So if someone in this position presents to their doctor, what tips does this module offer on how to assess their mental health?
1: Written by Professor Cornelius Katona and his daughter, Dr. Cara Katona, the module is called Supporting Displaced People with Mental Health Conditions. It states provision of mental health assessment and care should be trauma informed. This not only means recognising that a displaced person has likely experienced significant trauma, but also that there is a link between trauma and mental health. Questions about trauma should be sensitive and unhurried. Individuals' strengths and coping skills should be identified and over of normal responses to stress should be avoided.
2: I imagine um, in these sorts of consultations that confidentiality and open dialogue are important, especially talking about mental health. Can you tell me more about any specific cultural considerations that our listeners might need to think about?
1: It's important for healthcare professionals to be aware that mental illness can carry an even greater stigma in some cultures than it does in British culture. The module recommends thinking about the different ways in which people from different cultures might communicate their distress and how they might view, view mental illness and its treatment. Where an interpreter is required, using family members, if at all possible, should be avoided. This is important for ensuring that all information is shared three ways between the patient, the clinician and their interpreter.
2: I'm thinking about some of the things that you mentioned earlier, like human trafficking. Clearly, really distressing. What can healthcare professionals do to take care of their own mental health in these sorts of consultations?
1: Healthcare professionals do need to be mindful that listening to stories of trauma can itself be traumatic. So, support should be put in place to mitigate against this. The module notes that the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies is one of the many organisations that have developed useful resources in this area. For more information, I do recommend reading the module on MIMS learning. I think given all that's happening in the world at the moment, we are going to see more and more displaced persons in need of mental health support. Therefore, the more healthcare professionals understand how best to support them, the better.
0: Thanks very much Rhiannon and Dawn. So we go now to our interview with Dr. Susru Sukumaran. So I'm delighted to have with me today, Dr. Susru Sukumaran, who's a GP in Ealing. He's been a GP since 2005, and he's also a GP trainer and clinical director of his primary care network. So Susru, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, including your work as a GP?
3: Thanks for inviting me for this podcast. It's a new experience. So i trained in Singapore which is where I'm originally from. I studied there and then came over to the UK in the late 90s. I did some pediatrics. I am I qualified as a pediatrician but then in the early noughties I decided to become a GP, finished my training and have been working in West London ever since. I've been in the borough of Ealing since I finished my training actually and I became a partner in my current practice in 2011. And uh, we see a wide variety of patients it's obviously an interesting field it obviously has been stressful as I think every GP in the country has experienced but uh, we're getting through it we've got a quite good practice I like to think
0: and the reason why we're uh, talking to you today is to do with your work for an organization called London Friend so I have two questions really first of all a bit about what London Friend does and also what got you interested in in working with them and what you get out of it?
3: Sure. So, London Friend is the oldest LGBT charity. For so that I don't keep repeating LGBT, I'm going to say the community. Okay. Um, so, it is the oldest charity for the community in London. It's it's been going around on for 51 years now. Um, in fact, last year at Pride, they had a 50th anniversary I think it's a big event. It's an organization that provides a lot of services. The service that I'm involved with is Antidote, which involve. Um, providing free, a confidential service to the people in the community who have drug and alcohol issues. Right. Um, but in addition to that, they provide other services like befriending services, counselling services, even um, social groups for people who do not know other in, uh, individuals. Also, they can um, signpost other organisations like legal services and so on. So it's a pretty big remet uh, that London Friend has. And it's constantly changing because it depends on what is needed and so on. So recently, for example, because there's been a lot more need for support for transgender individuals, there has been more services provided there as well. There is a website, so I would recommend you look at that if needed. So why did I get involved? Well, as a gay man, I, I'm very lucky. I grew up in a country which is very homophobic. Um, But after moving here, I came out and my coming out experience, uh, obviously every coming out experience is unique, but I was very lucky in that I had a family that was very supportive, that is very supportive. I have friends and I work in the NHS, which is for the most part very supportive as well. But as a gay man who has lived in London and uh, well, also in Cardiff briefly, you, you get to know other individuals and experiences vary and not all of them are positive. In fact, a lot of experiences are not positive. And I think all of us have at various points in our lives experienced homophobia and abuse and so on. And as I got more settled in my life, I felt that it was my duty and almost a responsibility to try and help others who were not as fortunate as I was. Or am, actually. So um, I decided to do some volunteering because I felt that this is the best way forward. And I was pointed in the direction of London Friend, And because I'm also medically trained, then they signpost me to Antidote, which is the group that I work predominantly with. Here we are. And here we are. <laughs> yes.
0: And what does your role with uh, London Friend and with Antidote involve on a regular basis?
3: So I am a volunteer and Antidote basically, provi- as I said, provides a free help for people with drug and alcohol uh, issues. And it's a small group, a core group of uh, regular staff members, but it's mostly volunteers. And what we do is there are drop-in sessions where individuals can come in and just talk and sometimes they just need uh, a little bit of support to say they're doing all right. Sometimes they've had a bit of a lapse, sometimes they're in a lot of trouble. We get the whole range. And so what we do is we talk to them and we provide support and we provide help and we signpost them in different directions as needed. So my role there is as a volunteer. I'm not there as a doctor. I'm there as a volunteer with some medical expertise. that's all it is. People don't ask me to adjust their medications, for example. And I won't do that because that's not my remit. But it's to talk to them, help them, and establish what help they need, what uh, their issues are, and then try and figure out a way around the problem or how to reduce their usage or how to completely abstain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do they find that there are gaps in clinical care for people from the community that mean it's difficult to access care or that they don't get the right care sometimes from the NHS?
3: I think, I mean, I think it is worth saying, obviously, everything I'm saying is anecdotal. A lot of it, I don't have any written evidence of a lot of these things. But from my experience, uh, some of it personal as well has to be said, and um, from the experience of friends and a lot of the clients, Generally speaking, the NHS has improved in the way it deals with people from the community. I think even about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there was still very much a feeling that uh, the, certainly the clinical side of uh, the NHS did not understand the community. And therefore, there was an anxiety and a fear of going and speaking to someone and asking for help. Mm-hmm. Um, that has improved significantly significantly. But having said that, there are issues that, um, you know, the community often go through. And perhaps I could say it's often more gay men um, that seem to have this issue, particularly when it involves things like drugs and alcohol. I think when it comes to alcohol and benzodiazepines and so on there's a lot more established research there's a lot more established help that is available but when it comes to drugs such as crystal methamphetamine or T or tina for short gbl um, or ketamine or methadrone all of these you know the usage is unfortunately prevalent but there isn't any sort of structured help available and also A lot of uh, clinicians may not actually know much about these uh, drugs as well because the average patient, and this isn't just restricted to the community, I think everyone, wouldn't want to come and tell their GP, oh, I am taking crystal meth or I am taking methadrone because they know that it goes onto their notes. And there's an element of shame, there's an element of guilt, uh, embarrassment, and the sheer fear that all this will get out to their employers and their families and so on. So there is a fear of sort of um, informing and revealing the information. And so when they come to an organization like us, we can actually help them. I don't know if there is a solution to that, in Mm. fairness. But at the same time, I think if a clinician is aware that, for example, crystal meth can cause dental problems if smoked too much, or that, um, you know, ketamine can cause bladder problems if taken in excess then they might be able to deal with it better if, you know, a, a patient tells them that there might be an issue there and perhaps record things in a slightly less accusatory way in the notes. It's difficult, and I don't know if there's an un, you know answer to that, but I think it's more about awareness that this problem exists. And once that awareness increases, hopefully there will be more of a, well, I mean, I, I hate to say that. hopefully we will not need to see so many clients in, in at uh, London Friend and Antidote.
0: Yeah, I guess it's an, an indicator that needs not necessarily being met elsewhere yeah, if, you're, yeah. if you're seeing I mean, we people. We are
3: getting close to 400 people a year, and that's just the tip of the iceberg yeah. because, um, you know, I have spoken to people where, you know, they've said, oh, all my friends do it. But they don't see it as a problem, and it may well not be a problem. But um, it's the range. I mean, we don't know how big the iceberg actually is.
0: Yeah. Basically. So it's unknown what the yeah <clears throat> unknown what the impact on people's health yeah, exactly. it actually is. Yeah. Exactly. And would you say there's an element of unmet mental health need? Oh, as well.
3: Definitely. I think you know. I the thing is that the community is quite good at hiding things and I think um, in fact I think there was an article that came out um, possibly the Guardian or somewhere I think a few years ago which said that during COVID 80% of gay men I think were experiencing depression. I mean that's an enormous number of patients and a huge statistic Mm. Um, but obviously you know I mean obviously during COVID I think everybody was having issues in fairness but it, it is a I I personally feel that there is a lot of mental health issues a lot of um uh, unmet need when it comes to that and it's because they cannot often they feel that they may not be able to talk to their GPs or you know even mental health workers about some of their own issues um because they feel they may not understand it is improving i mean recently more and more clients are saying oh i have a good relationship with my gp and with my mental health worker or my psychiatrist or whatever but I think that it can and that should be improved further.
0: Yep. Yeah. So, would you, uh, you know, from a sort of personal v- viewpoint, would you mm. be able to offer any tips for GPs to kind of improve their practice or or think about some of these
3: gaps? I think knowledge is everything and i think it's good to try and find out a little bit about the various drugs the various issues and so on i mean there are a lot of resources online and there are people um, i know you know people from antidote go and give talks as well to other organizations on issues i myself will be t- give, talking to my trainers workshop in december about some of these issues and i think just being aware of what these problems are is the, the main step um And I think, you know, I think we are all all GP surgeries are now told that we have to be open and, you know, that we accept everyone and no one is, you know, that we show no bias and so on. I think, I mean, that's good and that's important, but I think there's more to it than putting up a sign on a wall. I think everyone actually has to be open. And also, from my own experience, asking someone says, are you gay, do you do this, doing that, and establishing that you don't have any sort of judgment um, makes them open up very quickly. And I think that's a skill that has to be established in fairness. And sometimes it may make some people feel uncomfortable because they're talking about something they don't know much about. So, again, if they sort of read up, they ask people, I think it'll improve the situation.
0: Yeah. And hopefully you mentioned some online resources. Yeah, I'm going to pick your brains about those. Okay, and hopefully sure. um, uh, underneath the podcast we can... provide some links to some of those resources and so how how do you hope to see things changing in future
3: ideally you know what i think what people from the community in fact what everyone wants is to be treated equally that you know it would we shouldn't be in a situation where you have lgbt health or asylum seekers health and so on i think ideally and it's this very idealistic is everyone should just be able to access the same level of care, have the same level of uh, expertise, irrespective of whatever group they belong to. It's, it is wishful thinking, I know that, you know, um, but it's what we should aim for. And I think, as I, I keep reiterating, I think it's all about knowledge. Um, and sort of awareness and even if you're not completely sure what to do to be able to signpost to somebody who does know what to do and saying this is okay we will help you and I think that's the sort of level we need to aim for
0: and if you feel comfortable to do so would you like to talk about an inspiring individual who you've learned from in this area of your of your work
3: well actually the head of the service um i I'm not going to mention their name, but they're very open about it Mm -hmm. and they've been online and on talks and so on. Um, They had issues with uh, substances and so on in their teens, but they overcame it. They overcame illness and so on. And they run the service. I mean, they've been in charge of the service for, the antidote part of London Friend has been running for 21 years now. And, um, you know, for all the the horrible things that have happened in their past they now provide so much help and i look at them and i think if you can get through that anyone can and they put in so much of their own personal time and you know they they help to train other people and so on they're now a very good friend of mine as well and um they i really i'm inspired by them yeah i mean that's what i would like to be too, eventually
0: (laughs) (laughs) oh it sound, sounds fantastic it's yes. it's wonderful to um to hear those those thoughts yeah. um about this this person yeah. well thank you so much for joining us today thank you and, thank you for inviting um, to share it's, it's been really interesting to hear about about your work in this area yeah. and um i hope that as you say it can things will continue to improve oh i hope so yeah thank so, you well thank you so much So, premature ejaculation, which is also known as early or rapid ejaculation, is apparently common and affects up to 30% of men, but is not something people naturally tend to discuss with their GP. So we have a learning module on MIMS Learning written by Dr. Abubakar Jha about premature ejaculation. And we have some key points for you, three key points for you to take away and use in practice.
1: So what's our first key point? The first key point is to be aware of the definition of premature ejaculation and its different subtypes. The American Psychiatric Association defines premature ejaculation as ejaculation that occurs sooner than desired either before or shortly after penetration causing distress to one or both partners. The International Society for Sexual Medicine has a similar definition making a distinction between lifelong premature ejaculation and premature ejaculation that develops over time known as acquired premature ejaculation. Two further subtypes are natural variable premature ejaculation characterized by irregular early ejaculation and premature like ejaculatory dysfunction which is perceived early ejaculation. Thanks Dawn and Rhiannon our second
0: key point is
2: Taking a thorough history will help to eliminate potentially serious causes. Healthcare professionals are, of course, trained to raise these types of issues sensitively, bearing in mind the potential psychological impact of the condition. This can help patients to feel less embarrassed, which in turn can help you to gather a full medical and psychological history. Dr. Jar also recommends a focused physical examination to identify potentially serious causes, particularly in patients with acquired premature ejaculation. There are a number of key questions to ask, and these can be found in the module on the MIMS Learning website or see the podcast notes for a link.
0: Thank you. Our third key point concerns therapy for this condition. There are two types of therapy, according to Dr. Jar: behavioural therapy and pharmacological therapy. Behavioural therapy may be more suitable for those with acquired premature ejaculation. Pharmacological therapy, on the other hand, may involve local anaesthetic cream Um, there's an SSRI which is licensed for this indication and there are other agents although he says that injectable therapy is still not widely accepted. So to sum up our three key points based on this module are firstly that early or rapid premature ejaculation is very common and falls into different subtypes. Secondly that good communication is vital to uncover the condition and find out more about the history and thirdly that a variety of therapies Are available to help with this distressing condition. Thanks very much for listening. We look forward to welcoming you next time when we'll have lots more important clinical pointers from our experts to discuss. Please do visit mimslearning.co.uk and consider signing up for one of our digital or live events as part of MIMS Learning Live. We'll see you next time.